This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. I got you. I got I'm, you. I'm with you, buddy. I'm with you. Nick Angers on Nick Angers. I'm sorry. This is the fucking full blast podcast, and this is a perf. This is a complete, 100 feather in my cap. Because without any further ado, the first podcast ever done by Nick Angers, <laughs> also known as Nick Anger, depending on who you talk to. Nick, how are you? Doing good. How are you? Now let's get this out of the way because you know <laughs> because I know the first time I heard someone call you Nick Angers was Alex Steele. And I was just like, what? And then when I met you with Pat Quinn at the Center for Mental Arts, he's calling Nick Anger. So what do you prefer? Um, I prefer you just to be nice to everybody. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't care. Um, okay. You know, really, you put anger in front of knives and you let the world see it, it becomes anger knives. You know, it's how it reads. So... It is a, it is a, it is a, it is a pretty good selling point. It is. A, it sounds awesome. Oh, I know, but it is my family's last name, and it's. Not, I didn't make that up. You know, I lived. <laughs> I, I lived with that my whole life. You know, well, what, when when you grew, growing up, what did your parents? How did they introduce themselves? Oh, the Angers. Okay. Always. There you go. Guys, the Angers always. You heard it from. You hear, heard it from here. We've been making huge mistakes. I've been saying you're my favorite knife maker for all this all these years. Oh, buddy. And then and then I've been saying your name wrong, and I apologize. But I do yeah. that all the time. No, you're good. I think that I think that when, for me, when I look at your work, and I look at the body of the, your work, and, and I got the privilege to meet with you, meet you, and hang out with you, at the Center for Metal Arts where you're teaching, but also we hung out in the city for a little bit. We had a we had a blast. I I tend to generally think that when I meet most knife makers, I tend to believe that knife making is not art. I don't believe it's sculpture. Mm. But after meeting with you. And talking with you and hearing how you talk about your work, you have made me change my mind for a certain just it's like it's like it's like first come, first serve. I take every case at its you know, at case by case basis. Because the way you talk about knife making and metalworking, it's so close to the way sculptors talk about their work. I I am you are an impressive human being. Well, I'm blushing. Don't be blushing. Come on, man. It's a podcast. People can't see you blushing. I know. That's why you say you're doing it, even if you're not. So a young Nick Angers, growing up in Vermont, what was that like? Oh, it was just, I don't know, big giant white kid. <laughs> well, but I mean, you're Vermont. <laughs> Try, I mean, trying to a... play sports and, you know, do stuff. And I don't know. It was tricky. I didn't really care too much about school. It was fun for like the first quarter every time. But then, I don't know. Never really, never really was too interested in that. And I don't know, growing up was weird, man. Growing up's weird for everybody, I think. You know, you try to latch on to whatever makes you feel like you're a more authentic version of yourself. And whether or not that actually is what it is, you know, you just kind of muscle through it. But, I mean, knowing other people from Vermont and, and you know, Jesse Savage, we're friends with Jesse Savage and stuff Yeah, like but that. he's from Rutland. Is that different? <laughs> Rut, <laughs> Rut, I mean, that doesn't I'm, count? <laughs> Rutland's, it, it's just, you know, like that's the bottom of the state. And I oh, grew oh. up in, I grew up in Colchester, which is near Burlington. So it's just, it's different worlds. Like, you know, he's four hours from New York City. I'm, that would be six oh, for me. You so know? basically he's a New Yorker. Basically a New Yorker, okay. yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I have no soft, problem with that. Soft New Yorker. Yeah, we're the softest. Yeah. We are the, we are the uh, soft. Maximum, maximum ply. <laughs> 
so but i mean did you did you do i mean I, what i was getting to is is like most oh of the yeah i was a psycho when i was a kid i mean i used to like bend spoons and knives and forks and shit and tie strings on them and grappling hooks and taping <laughs> taping exacto knife blades together and building atlatls and you know taking a pair of old crutches from the basement and making a bow and like all you know just all that all that stuff that you do because your parents won't let you play with knives and yeah <laughs> did you have brothers and sisters i have a sister she's younger than me hmm so you you do you feel like you had a lot of friends growing up or were um, you kind of on your own most of the time? No, I had friends. You know, it was always like one or two like really good friends, and then maybe a couple of other kids that you'd hang out with. You know, it's yeah, I don't know. I mean, yes, I definitely had friends growing up. I mean, I was definitely not like an alone kid. But you know, when you're <laughs> when you're 14 years old and you know, six, 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 seven, whatever the fuck I was like, you know, you, you, you don't really feel like you fit super good with, you know, you just, you can't buy the same clothes as everybody. I mean, back in the nineties, you couldn't really, you know, huh? So you just, were, you were much taller than most of the people in your school then. Oh yeah, dude. I was six, six in like eighth grade. Jeez. And then I squeezed out another three inches over the remaining two years or You're whatever. seven one no fuck no dude six six <laughs> okay let's, let's do math knife maker <laughs> I mean, i'm with you I'm, please trust yeah. me I, i'm terrible at everything so math's gonna be on that on that list yeah i'm not but good it, at math either one of the things that i think that with creative people like the people who listen to this podcast are makers they're not all knife makers i feel like the people who grew up doing things on their own you know they weren't doing it with their friends. Like when I was a kid, I, I wasn't allowed to have certain toys. And my dad brought me into his wood shop and showed me how to use his bandsaw. Next thing you know, I'm making like rifles and stuff. I think that creative people at a young age end up becoming more self-sufficient because they're, they have no choice. You're not being creative with your friends at a, at a young age. You're not bending. Well, I'm going to disagree with that, dude. I mean, I played bass and shit when I was younger and like definitely, you know, that was like the thing I would use. If you play an instrument, you spend a huge amount of time in your room sucking at something and right. hoping you'll get better. And like that thing being the thing that, you know, you've decided to identify with as like the coolest thing that you do. And, you know, it's just a, it's a tricky thing. There's like a status thing. There's always people much better than you. And, you know, you never really like the way anything you, you're doing pans out. Can, can I ask you a question about music? Yeah. Actually, the funny thing is my kid just turned 16. Perfect. For, she's it's a great she's, age. She's she's very interested. She We tried her with the piano. She didn't like the piano. Yeah. We tried her with the guitar. She just wasn't into it. She loves music, and she listens to music. Yeah. So for her birthday, she wanted a uh, a record player. Yeah. And we got her a record player, and we got her all these records. And then yesterday, we just gave her some money, and we went to this place that sells used records. She bought a pile of records. All the records were like, you know, crazy, not like new records, but there were old records, some of the Irving Berlin, and there was this, you know, rock stuff from the 70s and, and weird stuff from the 80s, and she was buying stuff based on the album covers, and we were talking, and she was playing everything, and she was just like in the kitchen, and it was just so much fun, and when we talked this morning, we were talking about music, and I said to her, you know, there's two types of peep kids with music, well, especially we're talking about Eddie Van Halen, and, and I said, you know, when Eddie Van Halen was you know when he was older a lot of kids either wanted to be eddie van halen or they appreciated him and it's almost like people with music go in two different directions they're either i want to be that guy or i just want to enjoy it yeah when you started doing music 
No, it's an identity thing, man. Yeah. It's like you're trying to be something if you're playing something. Like mm-hmm. you are you are using that as a conduit to kind of explain yourself to the world to anybody that's listening, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's that's what that was. And if you suck at it, then like the message that you broadcast is that I suck. <laughs> but the idea is early on you're you're supposed to suck and then you just you learn that you're going to get better. Exactly, and you get better and you get better and you get better, but then you see that everybody else gets better. And I don't know, I guess what I'm saying is, is like you were asking if I, you know, I, yes, I had friends in high school um, and I would play music with some of them, hmm. you know, what so like music that, you guys oh, like hardcore bands and shit like that. Anything oh. where you could just like, you know, chug and have it be heavy and, you know, double bass, you know, just stuff that 16 year old kids play. That's something I've all I had to play the cello and I hated it. And well, you I see, hated, you had a different you had a different grow up than me, man. Like I wasn't allowed to use the bandsaw. My mom would have said, "You'll cut your fingers off." First really? thing, oh yeah, you cut your fingers off, and I'd say, "Oh, I don't think I will." But you know, right there, conversation over. Yeah, and but it's weird because you wanted to play the play the bass. I wanted to. Yes, I did want to play it, but you know, I don't know. It, how do I even say this? You want to fit in. You want to find some way to fit in. Yeah. It's like I didn't play sports until my freshman year of high school. You know, I was like cut from the fifth grade or the sixth grade basketball team and the eighth grade basketball team. And it always felt like a special kind of fuck you to tell a kid who's like six, six, like, no. And I was just like, and then I get to high school and they're like, you have to play. And I'm like, I don't really want to play. I don't really I don't really like your fucking team sports. And, that uh, must have been the most rejection because totally you're taller than everybody else, but it's not good enough. Yeah. And it's not like I suck. Like, I mean, I can take anybody. You give me pretty much any human being and I can make them do better with pretty much anything that I can help with um, than they ever thought they could in a very short amount of time. Which is why it seemed like such a kick in the nuts back then, because it's like, oh, okay, uh, all right, well, I guess you know, I'll guess I'll just you know go figure it out. That that whole team sports thing, it's so it's you think that it, you know it just the boat is in the, in the river, and if you don't make it onto the boat, the boat's gone. They don't wait for you. They no, wait, dude, it's like it, yes, exactly. If you're in fourth grade and you have set the precedent for what the team is going to be for the rest of your existence, and as kids realize that they're not going to be over six feet, they're like, I think I'll play another sport instead or whatever. And you know, it was just it was one of those things where um, you know I was definitely pressured into doing it, and being pressured into doing it makes you kind of resent it a little bit. Yeah. Hundred percent. I mean, I God. ran cross country and did track too, and those were great because I was a skinny fat kid. Um, you know, when you got like real skinny legs and just like a big spare tire, which you know, there's still an echo of that to this day. But come on, man. <laughs> come on, tell the truth. Come on, no, man. no. But I'm just saying though. So you know, like that's where I like learned how to like run until I puked and then keep running. Wow. And I'm not by any means trying to say that I'm some athlete or anything, but it was like you know, okay, like that. That was a that was a big a big push through, you know, running is such a different situation because it really, you team sports are tough because you, you all sometimes with me, I felt compelled to do well for my team because I didn't want to let my team down. But when you're doing it yourself, it's your own situation when you're running. Well, it was for the team. Oh, well, yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> so there was definitely, you know, people running who were much better than me. And either way, it's like, it, it didn't really matter. It, 
I, I never felt bad that I that I wasn't good at it. So at this point in time, the only kind of creative outlet you have is music. Yeah, and smoking weed and you know thinking oh, thoughts and whatever yeah. you know doing doing kid shit. Smoking weed definitely. I I th- smoking weed for some people is very very productive. I'm not one of those people. Yeah, and that's mean, fair. I'm an unplug the phone and crawl into the sock drawer kind of guy. And that's a special place to go. And you should go there every so often just to figure out who you are. But, you know, the the truth is, is that um, you don't know what you're doing when you're younger. And it's impossible to hold yourself to any kind of metric when you don't even know how it's being measured. You know, you don't you just you have no idea. And so it's like, how do I like where the fuck do I fit into all this? You know what I mean? It's like a question that you kind of never really know how to formulate to yourself. And so you don't really ask it. So you just kind of flail. And, you know, a lot of people like nail it right off the bat and then they peak in high school and then they're just duds for the rest of their life. Or, you know, like there's it's just everybody's got a very special story of how they coagulated. So, I mean, so that's so you had a lot of you were having a lot of understanding of who the person that you are and who you wanted to be young at a young age, even if maybe you didn't know exactly. No, not at all. You had, all, but you accepted yourself. Uh, no, I hated myself. I mean, oh, really? I think I. Oh yeah, I think most people do. I mean, when you run till you puke and then keep running, like you're running for a different reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I don't like the way my body is. I'm gonna run until it's like you know withers away. Some you know, like oh, I want to lift weights. I want to get strong. It, it. It's all. It's all. There. There was no. There was no predetermination, man. There was a lot of just kind of like grasping at stuff and not really knowing exactly what you're holding on to until you get a good chance to sit and look at it. Well, so that's, that's very amazing. That's, that's very, that's very thoughtful that you think that, because I think that it, the the idea of not knowing who you are, especially in high school, and then just kind of making these adjustments, whether it's running and doing all these things to kind of like figure out who you are and feeling that you hate yourself is pretty intense. Yeah, but I think most kids, and I'm not trying to say this in a negative way, but I think most kids kind of go through big phases where they don't like themselves. Yeah, you know, hundred percent, hundred percent. And so, you know, keep in mind, dude. I worked with, I worked in mental. I mean, I'm 40 now, so you know, I worked in mental health from like 26 or 25 to 30. 32 you know and i want to get into this i want to i'm gonna I'm, I want to get I okay get, yeah so when i when i was a kid i don't know what i was doing you know i was just kind of fucking there one thing <laughs> going back to my I think that's my, a fair our situation now my kid now has been in quarantine for almost uh well nine months ten months uh-huh. and she has been doing phenomenally better in school yeah, and she, and part of it is because we talked about it a lot. She wants to be a therapist or a shrink. I couldn't be happier. I want her to be able to do whatever she wants to do. But she's very introspective. She's very interested. But she said to me, she feels that the pressure of being in high school has is gone now because there's no more social setting now. Now yeah, everything's it's a performance. on Zoom, and she's a, a she's able to be in a comfortable environment, which is her hat room. Sometimes she does the school day in the kitchen. Sometimes she does it in her room, and she makes it very comfortable. And she's allowed to kind of blossom as a student without the trappings of the social anxiety of, of um, you know, of school. And and it's become and it's very dissimilar to what your experience because she no longer. I mean, she's got friends; they're virtual. But at the same time, it's like her schoolwork is she's blossoming as a person because she doesn't have to deal with the social 
the social uh, anxiety of dealing with other people. Hundred percent. It's weird. It's it, like it shouldn't it's, happen. Really. It's 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 great. I don't think that the blanket, um, you know, way that America is educated is necessarily the proper way. Your your daughter clearly thrives in an environment where she can have a little bit of control over the setting, and once that's set to set to bed, like she can, you know, she can absorb and process, and you know, put it back out. When I talked to Jesse Savage, he said kind of something similar. He hated school. He didn't do well in school. And then once he got out of school, he he went to college for a little bit, hated college. And then once he got on his own, he was a public, he became a published poet. He was a writer. He was involved in in history. He was involved in these libraries. And I I feel like, I feel like the education system is so, it's just, obviously it's not for everybody, but it makes me sad that you, that I, I, in my mind, I think, I think I see you as this, you know, big guy who's kind of, you know, trying to find his way in a, in a school. I would think that being so tall and being so, you know, visual that it, you become, you know, like a, some, I don't know, not an oddity, but like something that people would kind of look at. I would think it's very difficult. Oh, I got looked at dude. I mean, keep, <laughs> keep in mind, I, I, you know, I received class clown in high school, you know, really? like, yeah, I can be funny. <laughs> I believe it. I know it. Like but that was you, hilarious. You... What I just said is, Pure gold. It is hilarious. But listen to me. Wait a second. So were you like were you like the class clown? Were you like acting up? Oh yeah, I was a constant disruption. Huh. But you, you ask looking... like you ask like what did you do? It's like, well, I don't know. What did I do? I I looked around and I thought about things and I said stuff. So you stuff were looking for I, attention. I was looking for acceptance. Hmm. And I think that's what everybody's looking for and what you learn is is that you kind of got to perform a little bit to get that at a young age. Yeah. You know. You be mean to somebody when you're a kid and other people laugh. You're like, ha that guy feels like shit, but I feel fucking great for 30 seconds. You know that's what I true. mean? It is 100% yeah. true. And 100% so, true. you know, but you don't know how to process that because that's just, you know, that's just chemicals firing off in your body. And you, you're you like, oh, other people laughing feels good. That, that I'm not thinking about how that person feels, you know? And that kind of, that is something that, yeah. And see, now your daughter doesn't have to deal with that kind of shit. She she kind of you know the, she has her people in her class. She doesn't have the fucking older kids walking down the hall or the young kids. You know she doesn't have the distraction right. of the other, however many people attend her school. There's no drama because she's got friends and it's, there used to be a lot of drama. And now there's zero drama. Amazing, it's like, but well, also I mean, it's, it's like how are they going to be able to like actually navigate their uniqueness and differences in the future? That's that's the only real concern. You know, she this made, is the big problem. Yeah. But you're only losing a year, man. And, you know, the thing is, it's like fucking, I don't know. I I, I can't just say whatever because I I clearly don't live everybody's experience. But it's like, you know, everything sucks for a year. And then it's like we're going to be talking about how everything sucks for a year for the next 30 years. That's right. And it's going to shape people. And they're going to be able to say to their kids, when I was your age. Well, you know, we this is going to be we didn't go to school for a year. We had to do it on zoom calls it's gonna definitely change the way this generation behaves because it's like well i think the paradigm is shattered for predicting how any generation is going to behave what do you why do you say that because the advent of social media and technology and instantaneous communication you know just look back to when you were a kid like when i was a kid there was no fucking internet right 
<laughs> you know, yeah. if there was an internet, I would have been an amazing bass player. I would have looked on YouTube and watched everybody be like, oh, that's how you play it. It's so easy. But instead, you just sit and hope and think and get a book and kind of don't know how to read music, you know, all the shit. So it's like all that when you're younger, it just, I don't know. It, it's a lingering suck. You suck much, much more. It's a much more of a lingering situation. Yes. But the thing is, is that I feel like kids in the late 90s, early 90s were conditioned to be okay with sucking and being yeah. in their room and being alone and bored and, you know, I'm bored. Yes. It meant something different. I didn't get a chance to like stare at a phone. You know what right. I mean? Like there was no phone. It's like, Oh, your friends want to call you. You know, you have a phone with a cord Yeah, and your parents that- can overhear and they can pick up on the other end. It's like all this stuff is like, how we were shaped or how I was shaped or how anybody is shaped is, is evolving and changing so fast It's that it's there is little... no predictive way to ac- accurately assume we're going to know what that's going to look like in the future. In the, the future, only... you may not have to deal with anybody. Well, the only thing really is, is that just information is, is growing at such an exponential rate and how you process it is going to be much faster. Like you were saying, you were hundred percent right. When I was in college, it was the beginnings of the internet when I was in college. Yeah. And the, our college had like a, a email system called the VAX and we could send emails to the students or the, or the, or the teachers. But when I got out of college is when we started to see the internet. 96 is when we started seeing the internet. And it was totally true. We, we constantly say to ourselves, I don't think I would have enjoyed my college career if there was if there was an internet. No, you know? and if you were recording it, everybody has a, a, a you know, yeah. a video machine in their pocket, an audio, video, picture taking machine that was smart. That's got more power than all the computers I ever had growing up together, plus the game system. You know, it's it's too much, and and it's cool that it's happening and it's neat and everything, but it's it's. It's impossible for us apes to <laughs> figure out what it's re- what's really going to be going on with that and how it's going to shape the future of humanity. So when you got out of high school, what did you do? When I got out of high school is when I felt a little bit better about everything. Uh, what did I do? Um, first job was I went and was a furniture mover for a place called Busca Movers. And that was crazy, working with uh, people who move furniture as their careers um so i did that but then i you know landscaping chainsaw stuff um but what was really great is when i was uh, got a job at clinger's bread company in uh in south burlington vermont and they uh that was a great job that was tell me about that job oh it was awesome there was a there was a fingrand oven it was brought over brick by brick from france and um you know nine nine doors three decks steam on the side and you know shaping loaves and baking ovens and just you know doing that and and partying and stuff and not living at my parents house so we, so you were you were one of the bakers oh yeah totally well the thing there was i think there was anywhere between five or six of us at any given time doing anywhere from you know 900 to 2000 loaves a day but you're also counting rolls in there so you know there's Obviously, rolls go a little quicker than three and a half pound delis. So, were you doing a lot of the mixing, or no? The there was a couple of uh, awesome Bosnian dudes who I worked with, and they were the ones who would usually mix everything. And then we'd come in at like ten, eleven, shape dough, throw it in the proofer, and then usually me and my buddy Bob would we would be the ones who would bake out everything. Were so you, you, you ever do the like the late night shifts? 
No, because we baked all the bread during the day, so we'd be done by like eight, ten, and then it would have a couple hours to cool down, and then the the people that were coming in in the you know in the early morning or really late, however you want to look at it, they were the ones who were bagging everything. Huh. And the, then where, where where was the going to the grocery stores or grocery stores, restaurants, wherever? And you love that job. Oh, dude, I love baking bread. Do you still bake bread? Uh it's not the same. It's not a right. 55-gallon but it's not a 30-gallon bucket of dough on a huge mm. table where you're like where you can throw dough and you know, where you where you like can throw flour and it hits the floor. You know, yeah. and you just sweep it up and it's no big deal. You like you're supposed to do that there. The oven had has steam ports on left and right side all the way up, you know, for the three decks and you know, you would just uh, you would think about how you wanted your bread to get all crusty. Like if you wanted to make a nice sourdough, lots of steam, as much steam as you can do. Hmm. Some people would steam it right before they threw it in. I always like to steam it real hard and then let it cook. Let it let that steam just kind of get even hotter inside the oven. And then I'd bake in my sourdoughs and they'd come out looking like glass. Wow. So now I'm starting to see a connection. Here. Oh yeah, dude. It was when I finally got to actually, I, I found a lot of happiness and solace through kind of repetitive work Yeah. where I could keep my hands busy, make a little bit of money, um, think about thoughts and do, do stuff. But like, you know, it, a, a movement, a little dance. Baking is one of those things that it's so much different than cooking. It's like, it's almost a different, a completely different thing. It's more chemistry than anything else. It's heat treating wheat. Yeah. Heat treating wheat. Yeah. Heat treating wheat. God damn it. It is heat treating wheat. It's all, it all, it's what it all is, man. I look at everything in the terms of, see, for me, it's whenever I can find a paradigm. See, I didn't, there's a lot of stuff I didn't know. Like I didn't start reading books until I was like 21. So, you know, I, I had had, big gaps where I just kind of wasn't doing what everybody else was. And right. I think when you kind of, when you sneak back up on it later, you attack it with a different kind of fervor. And, you know, for me, it was like, once I learned about like, you know, just like ways to view everything, it all became super nice. I mean, this is in the last like, you know, five years more so than back then, but but that's that's always the case. I mean, you you you're in, you're in school. You're reading because you're told to read, as opposed or to you're actually not. getting. Or out. you're just pretending you read it. Right. That was my move. But that's everybody's move, and that's the thing. That's where people learn that fucking being bullshit's cool. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I don't, why would I read that? It's you know, it's like because you're supposed to. Because it's actually yeah. really good. Like, had I actually read Lord of the Flies in high school, I wouldn't have had to read it at like 26. Yeah. And I've been like, Jesus, Ralph, you know, like, come on, <laughs> Piggy, man. Piggy, yeah. what the fuck? Dude, give me back the glasses. Those are mine. <laughs> I heard Lord of the Flies references all over the place. Oh, yeah? I've been so, getting some? Well, I mean, we just did one. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I Oh, just oh, now. I, I was doing Piggy. Piggy was the was. The oh, I, I know what you were doing. I thought you were oh. saying that, like, in previous conversations, you had been referencing no, Lord no, of the Flies. No, there's no only with you, Nick. Only with I, me. I haven't had any previous. I haven't had any Lord of the Flies references before. That's that's a shame. Well, I'm gonna have to work on that. Green, so eat some pig. <laughs> so <laughs> you you're you're in the bakery, and what gets you into the mental health game? Oh shit! Well, I went to school. And just okay. kind of flailed for, I mean, again, you know, switched majors a couple times. And what got me into mental health was basically, um, I lived in this really gross house with a band and they, uh, one of the, the dude who owned the house worked at the local, you know, 
uh, what do you even call it? I'll call it a school called a school for kids. Yeah. Um, and one of his clients would end up in my house kind of daily. And this kid was, you know, he was like six, three, he was, you know, had his ups and downs. He was, you know, kind of quick to, to fire off and, you know, just being around him, I had to engage him and I didn't really have a job at the time. And I was like, you know what, if I'm going to be doing this, I might as well be getting paid. So I uh, just applied, (laughs) I applied for the job and then I worked with, with that kid and another one specifically for like two years. And, uh, they were real hard, man, like hard, like, like, like I, I'm not going to get into it, you know, cause it's like, it's dark as fuck, but you know, uh, like just hard. So then when that kind of, when they aged out of the program, um, the new kids I kept getting were just a breeze comparatively. Hmm. Yeah. But well, the, what do you think? Why do you think they were so hard? Why do I think they were so hard? Yeah. What was a, what do you think that their ultimate problem? I mean, I, I tend to think that I, I'm not talking, talk- I'm talking about kids in state's custody, dude. I'm talking about oh. kids who are like abused hard oh. in ways, in ways that your creativity doesn't really kind of scratch the surface of. Oh, I mean, I, I would read their books, man. And it was like, it was hard stuff. Like, I, I, again, I'm not going to get into it because no, of course, by the long shot that one of them's listening to this, I want, no. you know, I don't, That's you fine. know, of course, but, of but course. you know what I'm saying though? It's yeah. like, it was hard. How did you, how did you, how did you kind of like comprehend it? Uh, well, you know, you spend time with people, you think about them, you empathize, you, you learn, you, you figure stuff out, you read their case files. So that's been draining. Oh, it was, it was, it was the worst thing that ever happened. So not the worst thing that I should take that back. So let me just, let me just clear this up too. So when I started doing this was right about the same time I started making sculpture with my buddy Harlan Mack. And when I started doing that, it was because when I started doing sculpture, it was because when I was working at this job, um, I would basically just like fucking get drunk on the days when I wouldn't work. And, you know, it was, it was pretty bad, I guess, you know, not like, you know, not like horrible bad, but, you know, I wouldn't know what to do with my time. I was right. getting a lot of this like weird anxiety shit and uh, not, not even anxiety. I don't even know what to call it. Just lostness. I don't know what the word is for it when you just, when you just kind of are there. Um, but on we, yeah, on we, I guess if we want to get French, uh, <laughs> you know, I know what you're saying. Yes, absolutely. A little Holden Caulfield. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, you just, you, you, I, I, um, yeah, I don't know. I would just drink a bunch and, you know, try to like figure out what to do with my time between going to work. And, uh, my buddy Harlan was kind enough to let me come and make some sculpture with him. And that's where I started like doing metal work. And, you know, that was, that was pretty right off the bat. So like, once I found that, I was like, Ooh, how, how did you meet Harlan? Uh, we went to the same college. Oh, and he was making sculpture for a living or no, he was just making sculptures. Like, you know, he was, he was in school too. And he was making some stuff using steel and he's an awesome drawer and, you know, painter does all sorts of things. But, um, he was working primarily in steel and then, you know, all through high school, sorry, all through college as well. I had, I had a couple of people that I would work for who had, um, like, uh, like logging 
people would come in and they would cut down a bunch of trees and they would leave all the tops. So, you know, if I wasn't doing the mental health stuff, I would go and I would kind of do like, uh, like chainsaw stuff, Hmm. you know, and just like make piles and burn them and stack the other shit and, you know, whatever, just kind of cleaning stuff up. Um, so that's what I was doing, but then I kind of stopped working for those people and I had like nothing to do in my off time, Hmm. you know, and like music wasn't scratching the itch and none of it was. But again, when I started making, um, started, you know, making the shapes that he would basically draw the shapes that he wanted, like a piece of like three quarter round, uh, bent into. And so we'd like throw it in the vice and just do it cold. You know what I mean? Just meatheading our way through it. And then like, oh, we need to type bend. Let's get the torch going, you know? Oh shit, the torch, you know, and MIG, MIG welding stuff and, you know, making giraffe. But when you, so, cause it sounds like this is like the first real, real, real creative moment for you. Oh yeah, dude. It was, it was aha 100%. It was like, Ooh, this feels, this feels good. This feels really good. And, and you had all these other kind of, you, it's, it's almost as if, you know, you had all these other menial labor jobs where you were physically, you were, you were using your body and using your physicality. So it probably made it a lot easier to, you know, sculpture generally is a little bit more physical than anything else. So you're able to kind of like understand that, you know, there needs to be a degree of force in kind of the execution of these things. Oh yeah. Yeah. And what was nice is that you could be aggressive with something and you wouldn't really break it and you're supposed to be doing it. And that was, that was kind of, and it was heavy and it was dirty and it made sparks and it got hot and it did all the, all the stuff, dude. Like it smelled weird. And you know, like there was all the stuff that happens when you're like, Oh, you can just go to the steel yard and buy steel. I didn't know you could buy steel. I thought you had to like fucking know somebody to like get your hands (laughs) on some of that shit. But I mean, you, how would you know? I mean, you don't, you don't know. This is your first foray into metalwork. Yeah. At like what? 26? 26 is when, yep. Started making sculpture. And then in October of 2007, uh, Harlan had a residency at the Vermont studio center. And, um, while he was there, there was a woman named Karina Mensoff and she's a blacksmith in Atlanta. I believe she's still in Atlanta. And um, she came and was doing work and she brought a forge with her. So we had been going about it the hard way for a long time. And then she, she had a forge with her and um, she was kind enough to let us, to let us use it, try it. And then did she give you instruction or? No, she was like, I think we were trying to make some like elephant or something. And we took a piece of pipe and threw it in the forge. And then she's like, okay, now hit it and upset it, you know, smush it out to make the trunk, you know, like the little nose piece. Yeah. And you know, it was like right then it was like that first hit it was like oh god <laughs> you know and uh and yeah it was that was that was it that, that was, was it that was fucking it right there so so when you were were you did you end up you doing the sculpture just for yourself no 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 i was only i well yeah he, i mean he was making some for like his mf for his for his show and for like all these other things and i was just helping i had no skin in the game none of it i was just there to like help you know what I mean? I wasn't, I didn't really care about making anything. But you were also trying to occupy your time because it sounded like. You yeah. Were... And, it, and it and it was, it, yes, I was trying to occupy my time. However, I wasn't making personal sculptures. I wasn't like, I need to see this happen. Like I had no I, process only. I was only huh. interested in that labor. 
So when did you kind of like turn over to start making your own thing? So the month after, <laughs> uh, so basically when she was at VSC in October, 2007, um, I asked her where she got her forge. She told me NC tool company. I said, okay, cool. And I had been working in mental health and for the first time in my life, I had had direct depositing. And so I had more money than I had ever really saved because I was I was always really used to like a cash existence for so right. long. Like I would cash a check and then just like blow it. Um, and the house that I was living in, the really gross one, I mean, it was two hundred dollars a month to live there. Hmm. You know, so I was like kind of stacking paper pretty hard for, you know, working yeah. in, for working that mental health money, um, you know, and uh, I just bought a forge. And then that house that I was living at had a had a little barn garage type thing in the back that was filled with just trash, like, you know, chest high. And so uh, after his residency was done at Vermont Studio Center, I just was like, yo, I want to clean out that shed back there and use it. And the guy was like, dude, you clean it out. Go ahead. I was like, fine. And just got a dumpster and just started chucking. And then, you know, piece by piece by piece by piece by piece. And then the idea was to make sculpture? No, fuck no, dude. The The idea was to get something hot and hit it. That was it. I just wanted to see it get hit. I just wanted to hit it. You wanted just reaction. I wanted to make, I want, you know what I wanted in my head? Go ahead. I just wanted to make like the sword that saves the world, you know? Well, all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's straight into swords, huh? No, 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 no. But what I'm saying is, is that like, you you dream you fantasize you think about stuff it doesn't necessarily always just start at a specific point it's yeah. it's this is a foreign material i can get this hot how am i going to hold it i have to buy a welder you know like all these things i only have six plugs you know i only have one plug oh man i just broke that light bulb on my face cuz i accidentally <laughs> walked into it oh shit i'm bleeding fuck i got to go to the coffee shop and you know wash my hand in their public sink you know so it's like you know there there was there was things that would happen that um you know just started kind of snowballing yeah but when you first start forging stuff your mind goes into making at least for me, because that's how I grew up. Like I wanted to make, you know, I was thinking about like knives and, you know, just like all the cool knives I had ever thought about. Right. So, so, so right out of the shoot, you were, you started to kind of like get some, some mild steel and just start forging shapes. I would just, I would just get whatever I could find. So we would go to like gate salvage, you know, we would just go around and then be like, Oh, that bolt will make a pretty good throwing knife. I think off the bat, we were hot cutting. Yeah, fuck, that's what we were doing. We would get lawnmower blades and we'd throw them in the forge and then we would hot cut them with like a fucking hatchet and, uh, <laughs> and a Stanley hammer, and, you know, right on the face of the, my 35 pound Fisher, which I still have. Um, and uh, that was like at my family's camp in the shed. Um, and we would hot cut like, you know, rough blanks out and then forge them into throwing knives. And then we would just, I would just drink beer and throw knives all day in the, in the, in the shop. And this is all learning on your own. Oh yeah. Yeah. This is 2007. So I didn't have internet at the time, uh, at all really. So it was like, I'd have to go up to the college to use the computer to buy the thing. You know what I mean? Like, so did you, I mean, at the time you, you, all of a sudden now you got, you got money to burn. You're having a good time. You're making something that, you know, 
And when do you start to kind of start to take it ser- take the knife making seriously? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so, so, so once I once I started, I got to a point in the in the working with the kids where I couldn't go in and work and then come home and then sleep and then go back and work. So I basically ended up for from 2000 and I think 2007 until I quit in 2012. Um, I, (laughs) I worked every weekend. So I would work Friday when I got, you know, two o'clock, pick them up from school. And then I would like stay at this house and I would do overnights and I would sleep there. And then I would leave Sunday at nine o'clock in the morning. So I had like full week to myself to like, you know, figure whatever out. So I did a little bit of foraging. I did a lot. I did a ton of foraging on my own for about the first six months when I first started, you know, learning stuff just to like, you know, swing a hammer until like your arm hurts. And I think we made some sconces for a local bar and we did a couple of other things, you know, me and my, me and my buddy Harlan. Uh, Just to back up a little bit, just because I'm, I'm unclear. Were you, were you kind of like, you were taking these kids and you were just kind of watching. They had a group home. And then you were one of like the counselors. Uh, it's not really a counselor, uh, mentor, behavioral interventionist, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I didn't really want to have a position where I made decisions regarding their life. But one of the things that I was excellent at doing was keeping everything safe and calm. Cause That's I'm great. Cause I'm huge, you know, and we're the, and we're, <laughs> well, and, um, and, and, you know, you can do a lot with a fart joke to really, you know, display some anger. Um, is that is that is that is it, if that's not the case, I don't know what is. You know what I'm saying? So basically, what would happen is, um, people w- what what had happened at the house is we would work, and all during the week everything would be fine, and then nobody ever wanted to work the weekend. So when the weekend would hit, it would just be bedlam at the house, and you'd have mm. you'd come back in the next week, and it would be like, what the fuck. How, why is there six holes in the wall and the windows shattered? You know, like why, like how, Oh yeah, dude, that's not, I mean, whatever. Uh, no, no, no battle stories, but, but no, of course not. But I mean, but, at the same time, it's like the, the idea of there being this turmoil with these people. Oh dude, you have no I idea. I have no idea. I'm, it was, assuming... it was too much. It, like I did it for a very long time in a very kind of intimate way. And it was, hundred percent too much, but was any of it rewarding? Oh, sure. The whole thing was my perspective in general. Like you will find me very hard pressed to complain about stuff. Right. I don't really complain. I, I don't, um, I can really just look at any situation and be like, well, it could be a lot worse, yeah. you know? And so just having that perspective is great. You know, I don't get, uh, I don't get excited I mean, I get excited, but I don't like if 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 stuff like if something happens, like say somebody cuts themselves or something happens, like I get calm and go for, and and, and right. work through it. I don't like panic and you know like so. There's a certain resolve that's built over time, and I also feel like I can I can I can deal with pretty much anybody. I can I can only I mean you did it for like six years. Yeah, every never called time. in sick every weekend six and a half years. And so when I started doing that, so I was, I would fuck around in my own little studio that I had where I just like make knives and do stuff. And then, um, who was it? Oh, it was my buddy Garth cross, this accountant guy who is, is dead now. But he, uh, he was like, Oh, I have a client, Richard Sprita and Stowe. 
and he's a blacksmith. I'll introduce you guys. And I was like, okay, cool. And so I ended up getting in contact with him and I showed up at his shop in Stowe and, you know, for the next, uh, you know, two months, I basically forged, um, curtain rings for the Von Trapp family lodge. Whoa. Yeah. And so like, I went from being in my shop where I didn't, you know, and he didn't pay me. I didn't get, I think I got two, like three X fly fishing shirts and, uh, and uh, like a, and two tubes of crest pro health toothpaste. <laughs> that's not a joke. It's <laughs> not a joke. It's pathetic. No, but that's what I got and whatever. Don't matter. Um, so did you stay, did he give you, did he put you up or no, did you, was it easy to commute? It, it, I mean, this is back when gas, remember when gas was like four bucks a gallon, dude, you remember? No. Yeah. Oh, that was a, that was the height of uh, uh, George W. Bush. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it was, it was like it was like a few months. Y- yes, but what I'm saying is, is like those were the months that I worked for him. So it was like it was costing me like mad money to drive from you know Johnson to Stowe. What? Whatever. It doesn't matter. And so, um, so I did that. But what was great about that is you know I made three thousand curtain rings. Uh, the other guy, Nick Pester, who worked there as well, he he made the other three thousand. Um, but it was just forging tapers, scroll, wrap, shear, tweak, flatten, maybe a brush if you're feeling like it, and then right into the into the bucket. And you start. I mean, I know you used to work doing a little bit of production blacksmithing, and there's something real nice about just blasting tapers all day. It's the best. Yeah, dude. I when you said when you were at the bakery and you were saying there's nothing better than just kind of like you know what you're doing and you just kind of let your mind go. There is nothing better than that. Oh yeah, and 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 forging too. It's especially because it's so you're doing one thing at a time. It's the greatest. And so when when I when I worked there when I started the the first day I made 25 rings because it was like a, a specific taper, a right. specific scroll, a specific offset, a wrap. I was nervous, you know. And by the time I left there, I was doing 225 in a day. That's always the case. Yeah, the but but, but you know what I'm saying though. So it's like, yeah. you know, 25 times I was loading 10 316 cold roll round bar into the end of a whisper mama and just blasting tapers. So then this experience got you to where? Okay, so then I worked there for a little bit, and then there was actually, because you know how the world of this stuff works, um, yeah. there was a guy right down the road who had worked for Richard for, um, you know, like five or six years, and he opened up his own shop right down the road, and I ended up popping over there and working for him for four and a half years. Huh. Doing, so like, you're... railings and fireplace screens and, you know, whatever, like thousands of hooks and fireplace tools and you know fabrication kind of stuff anything that really needed to be made not really tools but like you know architectural iron work door latches strap you know strap hinges things like that um and while i was doing that i was also on my own time kind of focusing more on making like knives and stuff in my own shop because i was like scratching that architectural itch over there you know there's something to be said about um, th- there's a for- there's a fortunate it's almost being like lucky and fortunate I'm not 100% sure which one it is but being able to have that kind of technical basis behind you allows you to kind of like you know shed the shackles of of um, of what you want to do and be able to execute into what you I, I just I think the technical expertise that you end up getting in a job is worth more than you think and if you want to be making things oh yeah dude i mean i got paid 50 bucks a day 
not bad. <laughs> not bad at all for a for a nine hour day of grinding weld spatter off a railing and <laughs> and then so so this gives you kind of more you know ideas in regards to what you want to be doing and you're seeing finishes and stuff like that. How is that translating into what you're doing into your into your garage, your garage barn shed? It's just familiarizing yourself with material knowing how it's going to move, seeing how it's going to behave. Here's the the parallels that I like to draw a little bit. And I, cause I think about things sometimes. Um, for me, I would try really hard and exert a huge amount of energy to try to have these kids' lives improve. And right. it was like a very focused, directed effort to, you know, undo a lifetime of other people's horrors that were on them. I always kind of felt like it was out of my control and it was really just based on them. And the best I could do was just kind of get it where it needed to go. There was something very beautiful about knowing that if I put a line on a piece of steel at, you know, 42 inches and cut it right there, that that's going to be 42 inches. Hmm. And that if I need to put that inside of a space, that's 42 inches inches with like a little bit of wiggle room and it fits like that right there was like this new understanding of like oh i can actually control something it's inanimate and three-dimensional but there is things that can be kind of mapped out and controlled so i couldn't help on one end trying really hard so this other thing kind of made up for that that must have been very frustrating because i that's the one thing is you can't control other people's happiness. No. You can't fix people's problems. No. And so it must have been because my wife is, uh, she works with, uh, she's a nurse practitioner, but she also exactly. does a lot of, does a lot of mental health things just because it's just the way it is. Because that's it's who does the med checks. And, and plus, yeah. exactly. No, I, 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 no, we had the nurse practitioner and I would bring kids to go and figure out, you know, <laughs> where we could tighten it up and. They would always mess with their meds, and then the next day it would just be a whole new kind of shit show. Well, the hard part really is, is for her, is to be able to leave stuff, leave stuff at the at work. Oh, you can't. And then you go can't. Home to... You're saturated. She, she does. It's it's like she, she's been doing it for like you know, and the people that she kind of deals with are not. I mean, these are like this is not a Fifth Avenue zit popping place. <laughs> this is like uh, you know, in the weeds you know, situation. Yeah. And she's had to, for 20 years, she's been there and she's been figuring out ways in which to kind of like, as soon as she leaves the door, she gets in the car and she leaves it all there. And then when she's home, she is able to kind of, you know, shed these, these thoughts. And, it, and it's hard. I, I couldn't do it. You can't, you can't, well, that's the problem is, is like, especially with healthcare. And I would imagine with you too, you know, with healthcare, a lot of times people just show up to, to the office and they just, they feel that like they're a car and you bring it to the mechanic and say, fix the problem. Whereas it's, 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 it's just a lifetime of maintenance. And that I would imagine for you, I can't imagine the thought of like, all right, you kind of make a fart joke and you create some sort of, you know, relationship with this person, but you, but it, it's just this one tiny little step into something that will never truly hold. Ah, I have okay so I'm just gonna say this real quick um a lot of the clients that I had earlier on have through the magic of living in Vermont have have you know seen me or walked by me or heard about stuff or whatever and many of them 
though their lives hadn't turned out the way that they wanted them to, or, you know, I'm not saying that their lives are great, right? but I have heard from some of them that they said, you know, not really thank yous, but their way of kind of saying like, Hey, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Thanks for being there. Like, it's hard for me to talk to them. I can imagine. I'm like, you know, your life was hard then. Uh, it was hard for me to be a part of your life then. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it was hard. And so I had to draw some boundaries with a couple of people who had come back to the town I live in. Um, but it wasn't all it wasn't all a waste and it wasn't all negative. Right. You that's know, gr- I mean, that's all you can ask for, right? Well, and that's the thing, man. And like, keep one thing in mind here. Once I found forging, I had a place to put all that fucking rage that I had and just mm. that that flaccidness that you would, you know, that just kind of swarms over you after you spend so much time going nowhere. Um that I, I finally had an outlet for it. And the outlet was like not something that I decided was an outlet. It was something that became very much the real outlet instantaneously. And I don't know if that's like whatever, but that's exactly the way I view it, man. That's, I mean, you, I, I think that a lot of people can't find that. No, you know, it's called the raison d'etre and it's hard to find the reason to be. Now, if you think about it real quick, also, when I was working in mental health, I worked two days a week, sometimes two and a half days a week. That gave me another special kind of freedom. So I would make money all, I would make plenty of money to live my life in two, in two days. And then I had five days to fuck off and figure everything out. So if I spent four days working out in Stowe, making, you know, railings and going into multi-million dollar homes and, you know, measuring stuff and getting it right and thinking about escutcheon plates and calling screws fasteners and glues adhesives, um, you know, you, you, you start you start figuring all this kind of stuff out. And then I'd go to my shop and I'd figure stuff out. And it's it's a luxury. To a certain degree. It is, but it's also called like working 80 hours a week. Right. I, you know, I was in overtime every week hmm. by so, the beginning of the week. But it sounds to me like, I mean, I just, I feel like it's like, a, I mean, I don't like to say blessing, but I mean, the fact that you were able to kind of like channel these feelings into something that was very productive for you, because obviously you were doing a lot of listening. You were doing a lot of listening and then now... You're, you found something that you could listen to yourself, which is something that, you know, your own your own thoughts and, 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 and executing into something that was meaningful to you. Uh, yeah. Again, though, it's for me, it was it, it reminded me of, of being a bread baker where it just kind of like it kept my body going. And there was a, re- a relationship between my effort and the thing that I was doing. And it was just. Yeah, it was huge, man. So, so when did you start to make knives that we started to? What was the next progression into what you're doing now? Like, how did you, how did you start to learn about heat treatment and you know? Oh, bits and pieces, man. Jim Harushalit's books, um, Murray Carter's book. I bought every book that I could buy. You know, the blacksmith craft, the modern blacksmith. Right. Uh, you know, all the every every kind of outlet that I everything that I could find in Google searches. I pretty much bought it. I tried to watch every video. I did all that stuff. Um, It wasn't until, so in 2012, I think it was like June, 
I had a really awful restraint with a kid uh, that was just totally avoidable and not my fault at all. But I had to basically like restrain a kid for a half hour on a bathroom floor. Oh, and, um, you know, he was like, it was just, it was, it was just, it, it fucking, it, yeah, dude, it broke my fucking, it just, I broke. And I was like, okay, uh, yeah, um, um, after a couple of days of thinking about it, once I had like calmed down, like, you know, I, I was like, I'm, I'm done. I don't need to do this anymore because the thing that was awesome is, you know, slugging through it for all those years, I managed to save like 50 grand, you know? Like I, 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 I lived off the money that I made the 50 bucks a day that I made, uh, working for the blacksmith. I never went anywhere or did anything. I spent all my other time, like thinking about stuff and researching things and reading stuff and trying stuff and doing things and, you know, like all metal related. <clears throat> I quit playing instruments in like 2006. When I started doing metal work, I fucking 100% like put my bass away. and was like, I am all the way done with you. See you later, bud. You know? We are, we are, we are through ski for a minute. And I just dumped all that thought and everything right into, into metal work. And so in 2012, um, I, you know, I broke and I was like, I'm fucking done. And, uh, I quit my job, which was the best thing I ever did, but I'm very happy to have done that work for as long as I did. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I quit that job and, you know, um, I think that was right around when I had been for the last for the, you know, at the same time as well, I had I had maintained a pretty awesome relationship with the Vermont Studio Center. Um, My buddy Harlan, who um, I started making sculpture with way back, is actually the sculpture um, manager, director, whatever you want to call it. He's he's the guy. So I actually had a, a small studio in Schultz, the sculpture part of Vermont Studio Center for, you know, two years while, mm. while I was between spaces. Um, and so I spent a lot of time hanging out with artists. And <clears throat> when I quit working uh, with the kids, I also quit working for the dude in Stokes. I was like, well, fuck you too, in a way. <laughs> like, like, like if I'm going for it, I'm going all the way for it, you know? So I just, I did all that. And then I just kind of volunteered all my time helping a lot of sculptors and people just in general just do things because what was different about helping people, you know, make stuff was that they would say, thank you. Like I would try just like a little bit and they'd be like kind of grateful, which whatever, but like, it feels good when people are like, thank you, you know, complete new reaction to you. The the exact opposite of trying so hard for so long and getting a fuck you. You don't fucking tell me what to do. You know, like instead of, instead of receiving, you know, this is like, you know, we're talking about like nine year old kids, like, you know, threatening to kill me. I'm like, dude, you know, I'm six, nine, 300 pounds. Like I, I just want, I just, I just want you to brush your teeth, man. I'm not trying, this, this, this isn't about, this isn't about fundamental changes to who you are. It's it's a t- incremental. It's a little bit of Crest Pro Health. You can feel the abrasives in there. It's, it's I'm sorry for delicious. laughing. That's hilarious. 
It's so tragic, though. But at the but, same time, now you're dealing with these artists who are just grateful that you're like changing the gas pressure on the on the on the torch. Yeah, or picking something up, or being like, "Oh, I know where to find one of those," or "Oh, there's a really cool place to go do this," or "Hey, check this out. We can do this." Oh, that's awesome. There was someone here three months ago. So I started kind of collecting like all these people in my mind and like looking at a lot of you know art that people were making currently and all these things. And you know, the, the Vermont Studio Center has always been a huge huge resource and you know kind of the best part about johnson vermont and it's close to it's in the town that you live oh it's it's half a mile from where my current shop is wow yeah so you're there a lot now uh no actually i mean again we're we're talking through time so uh, you know things have changed in my 14 year right metalworking journey so far so 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 you're spending a lot of time you're getting different interactions with people probably very positive yeah i was partying a lot and you're and you're feeling positive about like your your decision making. Oh yeah, dude. I when I quit my jobs, I just uh, um where I live is right on the Long Trail, um which you know goes from Canada to the bottom of Vermont. And I would just go hiking like every day. Just spend a chunk of time. If I had a friend with a dog, I'd say, "Yo, can I take Bartleby real quick and just you know go do Prospect Rock real fast?" Sure, go ahead. So I would just you know walk and get in my head and just you know figure it out. And, um, yeah, I started, I, I think then it was, yeah. So 2012 was also the same time, um, when I got my first real shop. And when I say real shop, I mean, two car garage, uh, behind the art supply store, um, where, um, my buddy George owned and his wife, Andrea. And I was allowed to do blacksmithing stuff in the back. And, you know, it's it's baby steps with everything as far as I'm concerned, because, you know, that was when I got to, like, buy my first power hammer. Hmm. You know, that's that's the Anyang 33. It was like, okay, I got all this money. I quit all my jobs. I got a space. I got this. Okay, let's do it. And then once you start doing that, it's like, oh, fuck, because when you're feeling like you're limited by your tooling or stuff and for years and you're like, I don't know where I'll ever be able to do this. And I don't know what I'll, what will happen. And you know, you're just, you're, you're trepidatious around everything. You don't want to fuck up. You don't want to like, you know, you don't want to ever have to go back to doing mental health again. You want to make sure that, that you're good. And, you know, so once I had that, that was, that was kind of the beginning, the beginning of the end of the fucking around, you know? So, at the time when you had this new space and you got the Anyang, were you thinking about I'm going to be making knives? Oh yeah, I was like, I was like, I'm going to finally make Damascus. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And what you learn really quick is that an Anyang 33 is not the machine for making Damascus. Hmm. So it was okay. Well, what should I do? Okay, yeah, fuck it. I'm going to buy the Uncle Al. So then you get an Uncle Al, you know, and then you're like, all right, here we go. And once I had the Uncle Al, it's like, this is all I can really have in here for right now, you know? Right. Um, and then just started going for it, dude, just making stuff and thinking thoughts and doing stuff and started going to Hammerins in Maine, started hanging out with like Nick Rossi and Jay Morrissey and all those dudes, Ben Breda, you know, early on, like, you know, once, once you go up and you see these people, like the first person that I ever really hung out with to, to learn stuff was a master bladesmith named Jim Saviano. And uh, I, I traveled down to Massachusetts and, and hung out with him and spent some time in his shop. And that was really, you know, important. And then Mace Vitale, he was another guy who was introduced to me through a, a wonderful collector friend who's been just super supportive, you know, since kind of day one. Yeah. Um, and, you know, meeting these people and having them 
look at you and tell you what's wrong with your shit and what's you know like oh that's not good or oh that's a little fucked you know like they're they point out the things and i mean it was really when i met christoph derringer i want to say in 2012 that summer that that was a very 2012 was a pivotal summer you know my girlfriend at the time moved to brooklyn i quit all my jobs and went all in on some other shit you know and um and yeah and i think that's when i started like you know having like a real conversation with someone like christoph derringer who a person whose approval i always kind of wanted early on right but when he would look at my stuff he would you know he never gave it to me and that was like the most powerful thing anybody could have done because when people see what you're making and they're like oh you're nick you're just kind of there like that's really cool that you did something, <laughs> you know, like yeah. they're like, wow, neat. You're cool. Um, and I'm like, no, you don't understand. Um, but yeah, it was through meeting him and, and interacting with, with that whole, with my main set, like the people up at New England school of metalwork. Um, that's an incredible main set PS. Oh dude. It's I mean, that's- uh, the, like, I, I hate COVID so much because I mean all the reasons, but, um, I just miss being able to go up and just hang out with Jay and, and Nick and, you know, Ukiah and maybe pop and see, you know, have people come by Herb, you know, <laughs> like these people yeah. that, that, that kind of live up there and roll through there. They were fundamental in that beginning. You know, that's where I was getting exposed to like crazy Damascus, like looking at Jay's stuff back then. I was like, dude, what the fuck? Like you're nuts. It's it, it, so Jason Morrissey, Nick Rossi uh, are extraordinary uh, bladesmiths or uh, Damascus makers, and Nick is one of the best teachers as far as I'm hands down at the New England School of Metalwork. How close are, are were you at the time to the New England School of Metalwork? I mean, it was three hours, three uh, and a half. Not crazy. Yeah, but I always had shitty cars, so I always had I always had like piece of shit cars that I didn't really feel safe driving more than like fifty miles. God, I lived everything so cheap for so long. I think that's what people don't really. If you want to be a knife maker, or if you want to make anything and have it be kind of successful, the whole time that you're like fucking around and figuring stuff out, you cannot be going into debt to do that. That is a fascinating concept. That is the fucking truth because you cannot you can, you cannot be like, okay, well it cost me $2,000 a month to live my life. It's like that's too many dollars for you to try to be teaching yourself how to make interesting work while also trying to learn how to sell it. So how did you do it? I saved a shitload of money. Well, I mean, I'm ta- I'm talking about how did you So you you're around Nick and and Jason and all these guys yeah. and and then you're you're slowly getting better and better and better, and how did you get to the point where you were like, okay, this is it, this is this is 100. percent Was it just you? I mean, obviously you saved all that money from from your other job. You can you, float you know, for a while, man, when your life is cheap. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like that's the truth. Like <clears throat> before I bought my 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 current space, um, I had only ever paid maximum 500 dollars a month for rent. Hmm. you know which and then you don't have a wife and kids no wife no kids no no dog no you know like and i can make money i can you know you can do stuff so when did you start to like be able to say okay now i'm in now i'm not living off of my savings i'm in business now uh you know it's actually 
it's it's a very kind of so I think it was like April. Yes, it was April 2014. And I had been hanging out with a dude who was at VSC for like three months. And we had just been drinking like, you know, three bottles of wine a night and just, you know, getting crazy. And I was like, I can't fucking do this anymore. And so I I, I basically like overnight just kind of quit smoking cigarettes and I quit drinking alcohol. And I told myself, that if I did those things, I could then buy whatever I want for handle material, whatever I want for what I'm doing, like pretty much like stop fucking around and go all in, you know, on, on what you're doing. So that was 2014. And in 2014, when I did that, um, you know, my dollars were getting slim and then I was like, okay, now I have to get serious. You got to feel the squeeze too a little bit. You can't be too comfortable all the time. Hmm. That's a delicate balance. But you, that's been your, the case for you for, for a long time. I mean, you were in these, you put yourself in these uncomfortable positions and see how you reacted. Yeah, but it's, I, I did it out of necessity. I did it because there was really no other jobs around. Right. This was a job with healthcare. Not like I ever used it, but it had healthcare. I was like, whoa, cool, healthcare. Oh, 401k, neat. Paid time off? Whoa. So, so you, you made the decision to go serious. And in April of 2014, I quit drinking alcohol and I focused all even more of my efforts onto making work that was not boring anymore. Well, what did you so so tell me about that work? Well, that work was directly inspired by meeting Christoph Derringer and him showing me a very small uh, integral dagger that he had made out of a three quarter inch ball bearing. That was a it was an ear dagger. It was a very small, beautiful piece. Um you know, the cross guard and, you know, had balls on. I was like, what the fuck? And he's like, yeah, I did that out of a three quarter inch ball bearing. And I was just like, I hate you. So that became my kind of obsession was seeing mm-hmm. what I could squeeze out of what. So for me, it was between having that, the press and the ending 33 and my hammer and anvil and whatever, and whatever tools I felt like making, I would see what I could make for integrals. And this was before integrals were being made by, you know, everybody. Hmm. The, the integral is is one of the more interesting. I, when I when I, I, ex, I was explaining to someone, somebody said to me, "Why would you make an in, what, what's the point of making an integral?" And usually, and I, I would always come to the conclusion that it's really the, the 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 blacksmith's the blacksmith's knife because you can't really stock removal an integral knife. Yeah, not I mean, not like, not efficiently. Not efficiently. Yeah, you're you're going through a pile of everything in order to get. That I mean, there's point. guys who do it out of like D two and stuff, but you know, get out of here with that. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it is a complete. I mean, otherwise, I mean, blacksmithing is the, well, you get to the, forge more. You know, I made plenty of flat knives. I made a bunch of full tangs, bunch of stick tang things, bunch of whatever tang, bunch of you know all metal handle, all you know all of it. I made a ton of all of it. I don't know how many knives I've made, but it's a lot. You know, early on, I was just shitting them out, you know? What interests me about what you do in terms of the, the, you know, focusing on the integrals is it is is a complete manipulation of mass to the most amount of efficiency in regards to your technical expertise, but also the material. Yeah, I am looking. So if we want to talk about, like, current or, like, the last, like, three years or whatever— my goals are basically to have an interesting piece of steel be put into its new form and be as appealing as I, you know, in, in a way that's going to be surprising to me. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? I want to like, I want to, I want to get that feeling that I had when I etched my first, you know, 20 layer raindrop pattern. 
or you know whatever. Because I see it like the I see the I see a lot of parallels with the baking when you were oh hundred percent, dude. Um, um, it's the same exact thing. All of it is heat treats, heat control all day. Well, it's you have all this. You're you're kind of you're parsing out all this material, and then you're you're creating. I mean, it's the to me the baking the the, the similarities. I actually was explaining when I was trying to explain Damascus to someone. I was uh, to a cook. I was saying this is like making, you know, ultimately, ultimately, it's like making a croissant, you know, where it's, it's, you know, you have your butter layer and then your flour layer, and then you're constantly moving them together, and then once they're put together, once it's the knife is etched, then you see the differences very much like a croissant, where it's, you know, the layer you can almost see the layers of the butter layers versus the flour. And I, I've always been using baking in terms of. Um, blacksmithing and blade, well bladesmithing really um and forging uh and it's been a very so I, i'm just fascinated with you in terms of you know your early feelings towards the baking and i would imagine that there's a lot of similarities in the way you see that. i feel like when i was younger to bring it back i wasn't really allowed to do a lot of things that could potentially get me hurt right. like there was my my mom was very worried about me you know fucking myself up and rightly so I was a giant kid. It was maybe a little bit unpredictable. Who knows? You know, like, but we didn't, it's not like we had bandsaws in the basement and I wasn't allowed to use them. They just, it wasn't there. It wasn't part of, of what, what went on. And so for me, when I, when I got to be a baker, what I loved the most about baking was a couple of things. Like I loved the mixer. I loved that it was this huge machine that would just slam dough and like rip it apart and slam it together and spin in a circle. I love that the oven was, you know, 500 square foot, you know, floor space, like huge, awesome oven with a conveyor and like a big, long peel, you know, like those things. I don't, I don't know. It was hot. I don't know. I don't, it it is there is 100% there. There's crossover. I'm 100% convinced in just about anything. It's how some people can pick up knife making later in life and be very good at it very quickly. They have a whole other lifetime of experience that's getting brought into this new, you know, little exploration. But cooking, cooking especially, is so similar to forging because I always say it's it's like taking material and giving it proper technique, using proper giving getting, you know, ingredients or material, using proper technique and ending up giving it to someone. So I, I in my mind it's like the, the mindset's always the same. But the baking is so much closer to the Damascus. And getting into the Damascus, your Damascus to me is – your knives – I've said this I've said this before. You're my favorite knife maker. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that you have transcended the technique to the point where there's a there's – a, there's like in all of your work, there's a spontaneity that you just can't plan out. I, I see it. I see it. Like, <laughs> it's true. You're, it's true. you're right. It's true. There's a spontaneity, but there's also like, I think that with your work, especially the way you talk about it, you talk about your work the way a sculptor talks about their work in terms of what you looking past the technical stuff and then to be able to explain the narrative or your direction. You have a very, very, you're very well spoken in regards to your, what you're trying to get across. Uh, thank you. Well, are you welcome? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, it's that's a tough one. See, if we were sitting next to each other right now and we had like three knives in front of us, we could have a real good conversation about that. 
Um, because Well, let's pretend we are. Well, I don't have any knives in front of me right now. <laughs> but I'm only really interested in having a good time. Very early on... Oh, fuck, who said it? It might have been Kevin Cashin at Ashokan. It might have been Kevin Cashin at New England School of Metalwork or somewhere. But I'm pretty sure it was Kevin Cashin. And he said, make all your knives like you might be the one to own them for the rest of your wow. life. And so even if I make something for somebody and they you know, are trying to be specific about what they kind of want, I'm going to make it so that I am pumped about it. Yeah. Like if I'm not pumped about something, I'm going to probably just fucking give it away or, you know, leave yeah. it in a drawer, send it, you know, just cause it's, that's not, and I'm not saying that that happens often. Like I force myself to finish things I don't like. And what I find is most of the time people love the stuff that I hate. Hmm. It's weird. There have been quite a few pieces like that. And I'm like, are you kidding me? That that's well, but, that's they, the but one. they're seeing it from with fresh eyes. Well, they're You're not seeing, seeing what I'm seeing. They right. didn't. They didn't take that little piece through the whole through the whole experiment. And and then and then with that said, what made you want to do culinary knives? Uh, there was a woman at Vermont Studio Center named Sonia Ray, and this was in 2013. And she said, "Hey Nick, your knives are really cool. You ever think about making chef's knives?" And I was like, "No." Should I? She said, yes. Yes, you should. And I said, okay. And Dang. then it's all it took. Well, she was like, here's the thing, man. This was pre me having an even heat kiln. You know, this was, this was still torch heat treats. This was, this was early on. Um, maybe, maybe it wasn't 2013. Maybe it was 2011. You know what? I actually, I think it was 2011. I could tell if I went on my Facebook. Um, but I remember that she asked me if I made chef's knives and I said no. And then she said, well, you should think about it or you should or something to that effect. And I made her like a seven inch Santoku out of like 1095 or 1075. And what I realized really quickly was that um, the pieces want to bend. They want to warp. They want to curl. They want to do all this stuff. And, you know, when you're going full tilt with a grizzly, you're you know, you're getting hot. You're, you, it's, it's all figuring stuff out. There wasn't, there wasn't like the handbook, like there is now, you know, the, the endless YouTube information on how to make everything possible. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so at this time it was me just kind of being like, okay, this is kind of the shape. I was like, Ooh, that's a lot of forging. Ooh, I get to, you know, make this thing a little bit wider, you know? And so it was, it was doing that and then seeing how excited she got from it and then having other people say, Oh, you make chef's knives. And I was like, yeah, sure. Fucking sure do. As long as I don't have to go into people's houses and measure their stairwells and try to decide what kind of rail cap you want to pay me 180 bucks a foot for like, sign me up, dude. There's nothing that transition between lifting steel, big pieces of steel to not lifting anything over 25 pounds is a huge, huge game changer. The last railing I did, I did a railing with my buddy, John Ledford, and it was a huge, it was a huge, it was a huge project. We did it in Austin. It was a, yeah, we had a shop right across from where my shop is now. 
I was so happy when it was over, and I didn't have to do that anymore. Ugh. And schlepping twenty foot lengths of steel, and bringing him over to the saw, and cutting everything, yeah. and the bending over, and the lifting up, and the and then the and the and the getting nervous with the installs, and what if it doesn't fit? And then all of a sudden the cord drill's wrong. Oh, we duffed it. We hit the thing. Oh, hit it with the sharpie. <laughs> It's the, I mean, they're, the install work. Gunking or is, railing. You know what I'm talking about? The the boiled linseed oil turpentine combo that everybody used back in the forever. Yeah. Man, that stuff, fuck me. I just, I, <laughs> I, I, have, I have laid so many miles of gunk. I just, I never. I learned, you know what I learned from uh, Fred Christ? Fred Christ uh, used to run the, um, Samuel Yellen shop. Yeah. He's an awesome, awesome blacksmith. And he's actually, he's another guy that I love because he's actually classically trained blacksmith, but he's also a, a contemporary artist. And he's yeah, I love his work. Able to, his, 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 he's been able to kind of thread the needle between doing that classic Sam Yellen stuff and doing this kind of modern art. It's just, or contemporary art, not modern art, contemporary. And he used to tell me his trick was you hit everything with polyurethane and then afterwards you hit it all with with beeswax. That's the trick to make sure that it will uh, it'll hold up over time outside. Yeah. Again, I'm so happy I don't. Fuck that I'm shit. so happy Fuck. I don't have to do that. Fuck anymore. that shit. Once in a while, I got to do a railing for a neighbor, and I'm just like loath to do it, 100. percent So you're dealing now. All of a sudden, it's the Chef Knife City. You're doing Chef Knives. It was it's, never I mean, Chef Knife City, man. It was like it was small incremental growth. There was no boom, smash, crash. It was just, I think it was, I forget when I, when I, like for years I was anti-Facebook and whatever. And then I got on that because I kept meeting awesome people and I started forgetting them. And so I had to make friends with them. So I'd remember them. And then I had a friend who was like, Hey man, these knives you're making are awesome. Do you ever make dabbers for like smoke and wax? And I was, I was like, I what's what's t- tell uh, me what for smoking is. weed it's like oil and okay. wax and shit basically it's like a little pokey that you do to you know smoke your drugs and he was like he was like make me some make me some dabbers and i'll i'll blow them up on instagram i was like i don't have an instagram he's like get one so and then it just started and what it kind of was early on was i was trying to play instagram kind of like a video game you know i stopped playing video games and started spending all my time in the shop and uh, my you know it was like, okay, I'm going to make a piece a day every day right. and try to take a picture, the, the same picture of it. And just fucking Groundhog's Day my way through my existence. Huh. And try to continually find a new way to satisfy that same day. How did that, how did that make you feel? Awesome. It must have been because all it of made a me, you, It made me feel awesome. Well, it wasn't a deadline. It was just, it was a, it was a direction. Yeah. You know, it was, it wasn't just, Oh, I want to make a, or maybe I should try something like, you know, it was like, no. And then people started asking me for stuff. Other people started sharing my work. I started, you know, doing stuff and bit by bit by but, bit. Were you doing those dabbers? I did them one you, time. How did they work out? Oh, I don't know. I just gave them to him. I was like, here you go, man. He's like, I'll get you money for him. I was like, I'm not, I don't really care. So, but he was now, a glass so- blower. And so when he showed everybody the glass, the, the, the dabbers that I made, they were like, dude, I want one. I need one. How do I get 12 of those? I'm like, you don't. You, you, you find your local blacksmith to do that for you. I just did these for him because he's my buddy and I've known him forever. 
Glass blowers are fast. Glass blowers are fucking awesome, man. Glass blowers, tattooers. When you look at the social media world, it's like your glass blowers, your tattooers, your artists. You know, everybody making stuff. It's it's just it's, it's a super powerful, really positive environment. Well, pretty much positive for the most part. There was a glass blower that I met in college. My my college roommate Miles was a bronze caster and glass blower, and we actually before he was a glass blower, we went down to visit a friend of ours in center college and there was a glass blower on this on the scene call his name was steven ralph powell and he was actually a descendant of pocahontas wow. and his move was he had a he would have he had the, the center college was, was basically the art department was built around him he had them build like an amphitheater for the glass blowing guys and then every friday night they would have um it was almost like a performance a blow down and and people would they'd ha- he had his team and then they would do this elaborate dance. They'd have, you know, he'd have the little, the little, you know, plate full of um, colorful little beads. And then they would build, you know, basically go to the glory hole and then make this giant vessel. And then at the end, you know, he'd have music going on and then everyone's watching. And then it was, everyone was, all the glass blowers are kind of moving in unison because as a team. And then he would roll the vessel over the, over the glass, put it back into the, um, glory hole and then all of a sudden there would be this big thing this giant moment where they would blow the whole thing and create these monstrous vessels and they were extraordinary and at the end they'd hit the you know blow water here they'd knock it off the blow the blow pipe and then they'd stick it in the furnace and everyone would everyone would cheer and they would all clap and that was the end of it but the funny thing was and when he did was and he actually was thinking about his work and i was thinking about your work too because there's there was this there's this there was this feeling of there was a lot of contrast in terms of the shapes and the colors. There was a performative aspect of it. There was a ton of spontaneity in regards to what he was doing. And then what he would do was he would name the, his naming process was always um, the first name was a the first it was a three word name. The first word was a description one word description of what it looked like. The second one was like the color, and the third was like a last name. So it would be like bulging green anger. Exactly. Yes, it was usually Johnson or Smith or something very simple, and it became because I was It was if you were there, he probably. I don't know. He, <laughs> we wouldn't have. You would hated me. Well, he here's the funny thing is he he felt like the last name needed to be very simple. Yeah. Like the the the, the last the last name had to be very simple yeah. and accessible. It couldn't just be like it was always it was always like yeah, Red Fat Johnson or you know Yellow. Or it was it was amazing, but it was what was interesting to me was he never really he never he the glass blowers have never really gotten to the point where they're sculptors or, or considered sculptors. Uh, and I mean I mean if you go to if you I mean it's, it's a hard, bullshit it's, line, dude, that's been drawn by academia in a lot of in 100%. a lot of ways, and it's like it's totally fucking. Look, if you're commanding the third dimension and making things. As far as I'm concerned, you're a sculptor. My buddy Harlan used to call me a sculptor all the time, and I would say, I'm not a sculptor. He'd be like, yeah, you are. And I'd say, no, I'm not. And he'd say, yeah, you are. And I'd say, no, I'm I think, not. I see, see, now, now this is what I'm getting at, is because I, when I, when I've, I've heard you were on, you did a short YouTube video with your friend who makes the skateboard decks, uh, Andrew, I forgot his yeah, last Zito. name. He's he makes these beautiful. You guys did this collaboration, and he did a, a short YouTube video with you, and you were talking about it. And the way you were talking about your work in terms of how you see it, 
how you envision the profiles, how you how you talk about the contrast, the relationship between the steel and the wood. You had such a command of what your vision was that it was I was like, all right, this guy's a sculptor. You know, he understands it to a to to a degree. He knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah, it's not just like I'm making knives. No, and you know, it's, a lot of knife makers not. they say they're. And if you look at my work, I don't have a model. I don't have a, you know, I got a flavor, but it's not, there's not like my, my, my big donkey fucking, you know, 72. That's my, the one that I use for, you know, telling everybody that they got to get that one to do a certain task. You know, I think you should definitely have a big donkey. 72. Well, maybe, maybe I'll have a big donkey 72 in the, in the coming months just for you, but there'll only be one. (laughs) I, I will only pay be... for a big donkey 72. I swear to God, I want, I'm in line for the big donkey 72. I don't, I don't know. But I, I, I'm just basically, I'm basically, I, I just think that, you know, I, I meet a lot of, you know, we end up meeting, you know, I went to Blade Show, and you end up meeting a lot of oh, guys. Yeah. And a lot of knife makers are hobbyists. They learned, you know, maybe they watch Alex Steele or maybe they watch oh, these totally. guys. And, they, and, they, and then somebody will say, you're an artist. And then they'll, I got introduced to one guy. He said, he's a knife artist. And then I, and then he was talking about his work and I was just like, all right, well, I'm, I'm happy that you're happy. And I obviously didn't say anything to him, but I <laughs> felt like I, 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 if you, whatever you ultimately, I mean, that's my, I, I'd go a little bit like it's not art. Let me just I, say I mean, this. Okay. In the world go of ahead. knife making, you have men who right. identify as manly who are doing something that is incredibly manly. And when you use the term artist, you soften it right up and you open it up to a certain kind of, of criticism that people aren't really necessarily ready to have. And that's it. Because if you made it like, look, it's a hard user. It's a, it's a hard using knife. I made it. It's, it's got, it's for, because I've heard a million people, 1 million people. I've heard them. Every one of them. (laughs) They, they, they say like it's a hard using knife, and and because of Arkansas, because that's where the ABS is located. That's why it always has a little bit of that Arkansas in it. Um, But they they're they're making a, a hard using rustic knife because it's safe. You have what I'm saying? Yeah, I understand. I just think that a lot of times... Like, if you try really hard and make a knife and you want it to be as beautiful as possible and someone's like, oh, your fucking glue line showing and you you burned your handle material because you got your brass pin too hot. You know, right there, they're 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 a little bit devastated. I, I What I'm really getting at is the idea of is it art or not and what's the, oh, what's yeah. the line. And I think, that, I think that one thing in society does is they 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 reward the artist and then they kind of demote the craftsman and i think that when you start to when people start to when when you see craft and then people say wow you're an artist that's an art and then all of a sudden you just think is that better than being a craftsman and then if you are an artist i feel my personal opinion is i think that you should have a grasp well cuz you identify as a sculptor before a knife maker all day i, I did you do. i did you do i did you did i did I don't know what I do. You know what? You're, I'm 47 yeah. now. I don't know what I identify with. I, I'm going through like a degree of puberty. But you're, yeah, you're like artistic puberty where I'm like, I'm like now, I'm like, I'm not 100 percent sure what I. But do. you're a sculptor. You I can mean, be a sculptor and a knife maker. Yeah, I, at I the guess, same yeah, fucking see, time. Yeah, I think I, I make sculptures. Yeah, you make little sometimes. sharp sculptures. 
that you get to touch every day. My knife, my knives are not art. Well, you can do whatever you want with that, man. Um, mine, mine, <laughs> mine are, or they're not. I don't really care. You can call me anger. You can call me Ange. It doesn't, you know. However, however it plays out. Um, it's the the hard part is that when we start drawing these lines, we arbitrarily limit ourselves in ways yes. that are just completely unnecessary. And I'm not really interested in that. I mean, I I try to push it. Like I I have ideas and I just go with them. You know, you've changed you've changed the way I feel about it. I'm gonna if people want to call it art, I'm gonna let them fucking call let them it. call it whatever they want, dude. You know, I know a lot of artists, and they would love to sell their work like craftsmen do. And what's holding them back? The fact that people don't want to buy art. They want you to give them art. They want you to donate art. They want you to put art up someplace for free. They don't want to say, oh, I really like that. That fucking does it for me. You know, here's a thousand bucks. It doesn't happen. And when it does happen, they're so happy. It's bullshit. You see it as 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 artists shitting on craftsmen. I see it as like, you know, artists getting kind of fucked all around and craftsmen doing what they do and, you know, trying to make a, a, a go at it. Well, that's because artists generally are ge- our artists, generally speaking, are lousy at business, but also they're hoping to be discovered and they're hoping that someone will take care of the problem. And then that problem that the person that's taking care of the problem is hopefully a gallerist and gallerists are pimps. I don't think yes. that, I think the craftsmen generally have more of a background in business because they're doing standard stuff, building cabinets or whatever. And they have Would you would you call me a craftsman? A, and I, an artist. No, I call you I call you, uh, you I have a very very short list of knife makers I call sculptors. And you and Josh Prince are high on that list. Hell yeah, dude. Josh Prince, that's good company right there. Dave Lish. Dude. What, what? Dude. Dude. What, what Josh Prince is doing, and I, I talked to him. We talked to him on Knife Talk uh, a few months ago. He's, his background is fascinating because he started out, his parents were sculptors. Yeah. So when growing up, there was a table saw in the kitchen. Yeah. So he, was a, he had that unorthodox growing up of, of being able to see art and to kind of understand it, and it was a normal part of his vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I think with you, especially when I look at your work especially, like one of the telltale signs of your knives – your transition between the bolster and the the um, the handle material, there is a there is a quality to your handles and that transition that nobody else does, and I, I feel like it's indicative of your style, and I feel like there is more of a sculptural aspect to it. Well, I'm only joining two things, but but you know what I'm saying. But that's what I'm saying manner. though. So that that it has to be, it has to be interesting. You know, I I don't know. I don't have a process where it's like, okay, today I'm making a five inch whatever and an eight inch whatever, and I'm going to put this handle material on it, and that's what it's going to be. It's it's way different than that. I have a well. Tell me about it. Tell me what's your what's. Tell me. I need now. I need to. Well, I make steel. I have piles of steel all over the place. I, I, you know, if you want to flash forward to right now, I have a big, you know, 2,200 square foot shop that I live in with my awesome girlfriend and our little dog. And, um, you know, so I'm at my shop all the time. I am, I am in my shop right now. I have power hammers right on the other side of the door. I have as much material as I could possibly want. And what I like to do is make stuff 
and then look at it and then sit and think about it and be like, oh, that would look really cool if I, no, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, and then when the, when it hits, when it clicks, when it goes, then I run at it. You know what I'm saying? So, so you make a lot of, you make a lot of billets. Yeah. I have, I have, I have tons of, look, once you have equipment that can move material in a, in a bigger kind of way, you know, I can always, it, it doesn't go bad, I guess, is I guess what I'm trying to say. It's like, <laughs> I, I make yeah. it when I feel like it and it doesn't go bad. So, so when you pick up a piece of steel, you have an idea, you just kind of think this would look good. I'm going to make this. And then it just, it is what it is. No, you don't have like a game plan. I kind of have maybe a little bit of a game plan or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll think about doing certain things, but on the whole, I mean, I, I, Yes, there's a, a, a relatively prescriptive way that I would go about forging a general shape of anything. Um, but that said, I try to take a different route every time to get someplace a little bit new. Again, I don't make the same shit over and over. I don't have it. There's no template in my shop that's on the wall where it's like, that's the eight inch Euro chef. Donkey 72. Donkey 72. The, the big, I thought it was big donkey seventy something like that. No, Whatever it was it, it was I, it was yeah. green donkey. No, it was something. There was something going on. There was a glass blower that you knew hundred and eight years ago. He he met a friend of yours, uh, bulbous red, bulbous red Smith. Well, so all right, so 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 one of the, I, I think so what I'm saying, dude, is that like I fucking I make stuff because it makes me feel good, and I want to. You're following your joy. yeah. Period. Period. And you know, and you don't take commissions. I do. I'll, I'll do. I'll do stuff, dude. I do whatever. It's not. Nothing's rigid. I am not inflexible. Do you find? Do you find that this has made your life rewarding? Oh God, I love my life, dude. Like for the first time, you know, I am like, holy shit! Like I, I have my forever shop now. I have. I, I have my building. I have. Big, I have big power hammers. I, you know, I have ideas. I, I can do them now. You know the. So this is the sh- this is the shop of shops. There's no chance of this is no, it. Fuck it. This is no the way. forever yeah. shop. I have no. I have no. I mean, I can go anywhere and do whatever. But like, as far as like all my stuff, no. This is it. I got three phase, Are baby. You- Look at I got three phase. I got three phase, and I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm in the middle of nowhere with three phase with an apartment up top. That that's a, that is that is the forever. That is the. Forever I, I have internet. What else do you? <laughs> what need? else do you need? There's a there's a hydraulic forklift mass that carries my floor up up to the apartment. You so you have an elevator. I have, a, I have an elevator that's made out of an old diesel forklift mast. With a hydraulic pack, Un- yeah, man. Un, unreal. No, you're living a life of. But arts. you live your life like you want to fucking keep living it, or else you're kind of wasting your time. Damn. And then in the meantime, you're running down to see Pat Quinn at the Center for Metal Arts, and you're teaching class. Yeah, yeah. When that happens, unfortunately, this year I had to cancel because you know I was right. a little bit worried about stuff. But you know, next year, 100, percent no matter what, they're all happening. Um, I gotta give him credit, because dude. Pat's the fucking every man. Time I see, every no, I, I, Pat's the man. I wasn't gonna give him credit for being the man. He already is the man. But when I see him, I feels like he's really taking COVID. Uh, he's taking COVID very seriously. Hundred percent to how he's teaching the school. Hundred percent. Like that's the hardest part is is 
being able, I mean, forging in general. Yeah, yeah you're sweaty, you're close. You're, on yeah. and it's, it's, it just seems as though he's very, everything he does is so precise. And I, I just, every time I see, I feel like he's really doing a very good job in order to keep the school going and doing as much um, COVID prevention as possible. Yeah, he complies, man. It's, it's, look, I, I, I struggle with a lot of things sometimes because I've, I wear an apron all the time. Right. You know, I take right. my apron off when I'm done working. If I have to go to the store and I'm working, I go to the store in my apron. <laughs> you, you laugh, but like, you know, I am sweatpants, laughing. shorts, and a leather apron. And I am, and I, and I'm going to the hardware store because I, I need some fucking belt dressing right now. But they know you. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, they know sure. you. Sure, 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 sure. Big monster and sweat cut off sweatpants. Exactly. And like, they know yes, you. but what I'm saying is, is that I will put that PPE on, no question. Yeah. I put my full helmet respirator thing on every time. Why? I don't know, man. You ever huff a whole bunch of carbon fiber dust? You you yeah, use the you use right. the worst shit possible. I can't believe you don't have the fucking powered helmet. That blows my mind. Dude, I have I have the one good thing about COVID is I am so comfortable. I have a respirator on from when I walk in the shop until the. See that sucks, dude. See, I have a grind. I don't mind. I, don't I have mind. a grinding room. Yeah, that's good. So I have a grinding room, and I actually put two gigantic squirrel cage blowers in the window. So now I open the door to my grinding room. I flick the switch, and I'll open one of the garage doors or whatever, and I can dump all the air out of my shop in like a minute. So I have that running with the thing, all the stuff. You know, dude, come on. But but here's the thing. When I was doing metalwork in uh, various shops, I never wore I never wore Because you'd be a pussy if you wore a respirator. I'd go in the shower, blow, blow my nose. nose in the shower, and it's black. And I, now, ever since when uh, when I started doing this by myself, and I was I gave my because I gave my wife I promised her that I would do everything I can to make sure that I don't get uh, anything bad happen. I wear a respirator. I have four respirators, and when they start to get like gunky, I get a new one. I have not blown out black snot in years. I, I I'm like my lungs feel clear, my lungs feel good. I am like. Really, I I'm happy using. I feel more comfortable, and I'm happier at the at the at night because I've been using PPE for so. Oh yeah, and and, and I always never, take a shower you before you go before. to bed. I have to take a shower when I come home. I have to like go. I have to go. I have to take all my clothes off and then go straight to the shower because and I have to wash my clothes separately from yeah. everybody else's because I fuck everything yes. up. Yeah. That's what I'm, that's what I guess I'm saying, man. It's like, so for me, like putting a mask on and doing shit is like, whatever I can take it. I can take a, you know, a, a something to the face right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? I got to get me one of those. I got to get me one of those air powered rocket. Yeah, I, I've had one for three or four years now. And it, th- there was a point in time when I had that old shop, uh, when it was uh, the the two the two bay, you know, this is probably 2016, and I was grinding something. I forget what it was, micarta or something, and it just like instantly like was just coming up through my respirator. It like packed my nostrils, and I was like, "Fuck this!" And I and I oh. just went, yeah, because I got a beard. You know what I mean? And I'm not gonna be smooth yeah. faced because that's just not how I roll. But I <laughs> I, I I don't want to maintain that. I understand. Um, and so, you know, when I got that helmet, it was, it was, it was day and night. 
And so I guess what I'm saying is, is like, I'll always put the PPE on for whatever reason. You know, like I angle grind outside. Like there's certain operations that do not happen inside. I think that I think that that I think I I'm so glad to hear you. Yeah, dude. I don't want to die. Like that's the thing. It's like when you're like a nihilistic youngin who's like, I hate everything. The world sucks. You know, like yeah, sure, cool. But like at this point now, I'm like, okay, this is awesome. Like as long as I can make my mortgage payment, I get to stay in my dream. And you're living your yeah. dream. What's next for your this dream? This is it, dude. What's the next this thing? Is... You... Wait a no, second. No, 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 no. You, 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 you... listen. <clears throat> I intentionally have always left my spe- myself space to improve. I don't go out and try to do the most complicated, you know, nine parts of everything. You know, I don't try to, I don't try to do the most over the moon fucking thing every time because when you do that you miss a lot and the fundamentals down low and you end up kind of blowing yourself out because there's nowhere left for you to go simple transitions simple transitions but also just keeping it like realistically contained you know and it's it's tiny stuff you know like there's a whole world of folding knives that i could get into i love making swords Yes, you know what I'm saying? Like so, these are these are things I don't like selling swords. I usually just keep them and look at them or put them on the wall and play with them in my living room because that's how my life is now. I get to whip swords around if I want. Um, <laughs> but you know, like that's that's how it how it is, and it's I don't know, man. I couldn't ask for anything more. And you know, you ask what's next. I don't. I mean, I don't. I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not geared like that. Like there was never any forethought. In any of this, when the opportunity to buy this building came up, it was because the guy who owned it was like, what are you doing with your life? Seriously, <laughs> he kept he kept he me? kept coming into my shop and being like, this place is fucking small. He's like, he's like, you breathing this air all day. You know, he a lot of things that he said, you know, and, and, you know, then he offered to sell me the building. And when he did, I was like, cool, you know, Wait no dickering. So that so that you weren't working in the built in the building that you're living no. in now. This was a motorcycle machine shop. And I have known this guy since 2004 because I, he was at the bar and I ended up bringing him home because he, he couldn't drive, you know, like he, he needed a ride. Bringing it to his. Yeah. And when I did that, I came in, I came, I mean, I saw it and I was like, holy shit, this is, this is insane. Uh, But he was, he's a motorcycle machinist and he built a drag bike that, you know, won a whole bunch of meats or whatever and just awesome stuff and i brought him home at two o'clock in the morning and yeah we're in the middle of nowhere but still he fired up a drag bike at two o'clock in the morning and like revved it up to like fourteen thousand or seventeen thousand rpms in the building and i had never never heard anything like that in my life and um he always just like that right there put him on the radar and honestly for I think 12 years I just I had lived in apartments that were literally like triangulating this building. And then when the time came for him to want to, you know, build himself a new shop, he was like, hey, what are you doing with your life? And then were you surprised that he offered to sell you his, his this house? I said, well, this, I, I said, don't fucking say that if you don't mean it. Look at you. And then what did He's he like, say? I fucking mean it. And I was like, all right. 
and thus was born my uh, my lifelong friendship with this man. Damn. He's awesome, dude. Like he's he's rough around the edges, but he's got a fucking heart of gold, and I love him to death. You know, I when when I bought this place, it was full of machine tools. It was full of motorcycle stuff. It had a dyno and a CNC mill and a CNC lathe and all sorts of mills and lathes and lapping machines and truck lifts and you know, t- thirty five years of this guy's you know journey. And did he leave it? To no, you? absolutely not. Absolutely not. I helped him move it all. Oh, I <laughs> yeah. See, I see. Yeah. He got a guy in the trade too. You know, he's now got the six foot nine, 300 pound guy who's willing to come over at a drop of a hat. I mean, he lives right around the corner. And, um, but yeah, you'll have to come up, you know, once, once you're allowed to, you, you guys take a drive up to Canada or something. I, I couldn't, I want you invited. You were nice enough to invite me before. I definitely want to. We're actually now, my family, particularly my wife's, my wife is, is had COVID. We all had COVID in April and now she's worried we're going to get it again because she's, a, she's around a lot of people who have COVID a lot. Now. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, 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 we're in kind of like self quarantining as a family, but other than you know that, what I'm saying, I couldn't think of anything. I couldn't think of anything better. I, I know Jesse just, Jesse says to me, we got to go up and see Nick. And that's something I definitely want to do. Yeah. And I got that two fifty running now too. So you can see that. I just want to see you. Yeah, I want to see you too, buddy. You're a big monster, a beautiful, big, beautiful <laughs> monster. And I appreciate you. And I appreciate you coming Absolutely, on here. Absolutely, man. And you have an open invite anytime you ever. Just do me a favor. All these flea bags now, all these flea bag podcasts are going to invite you on. Just, just think about it. Just make sure that you realize that I, I've been working on you for a year. And I'm so thankful that you accept Yeah. Me. You have an open invite anytime you want to come back Thank on. you, man. Nick Angers. I'll never fuck your name up again. <laughs> don't don't call him Nick Anger anymore because it ain't right. If you're in the know, it's Nick Angers. Angers Knives on Instagram. And go go make sure you follow the Center for Mental Arts and check out what they're doing. And when they start to have him down there, you got to take a classroom. I took a classroom. We had a blast. Yeah, September, a, I think there's some spaces. Time. Go check them out. And then uh, also, anytime you, if you want to look at what a what a what a knife is supposed to look like, you go check him out. And with that said, um, Merry Christmas, everybody! Guess what? I got a big surprise next week. Ah, fuck it, I'll tell you. I'm gonna be but we beforehand. Go over to Instagram, uh, full blast the full blast podcast, and go give us a follow. Go leave a five star review. You subscribe, help me out. I'm trying to make an. I'm, this has been such a bla- such a great thing having Nick on here, and I'm going to be celebrating Christmas next week for all you fine people with the one and only Alex Steele. Alex Steele's coming on. We're going to have Christmas Christmas with Alec, and we're going to have a good time. And then, well, maybe we're going to see what happens. We're lined up for 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 January. We're going to fool around with in January, and then we're blah blah blah. So Nick, thank you so much for coming on. You're just such a great guy for doing it, and and I'm you're you are an inspiration, and you are my favorite. Oh, buddy! Thanks for having me. Well, guys, thank you so much, and we'll see you next week, guys. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.